the way that we like to practice the Christian faith, that we, send, we kind of um, major on the majors and minor on the minors, right? We want to keep centered on the things that are most important. So one of the ways that we could do that was to kind of launch into a series on the Apostles' Creed. It's one of the oldest kind of summaries of what Christians believe, and it was used in the early church as a baptismal formula. So this is the basics. This is not uh, a graduate level course. This is not a doctoral level course. This is not what's used uh, as kind of a high standard for everyone to go through. This is what all Christians kind of have believed, kind of the low bar, the basics. So the Ten Commandments, uh, the Lord's Prayer, uh, the Great Commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, the Great Commission, uh, these things. Uh, and this is what the Creed uh, summarizes, and it's what's been used. So it was originally used, and, and we know it's used as early as the second century. So we're talking about second century or second generation followers of Christ. So very, very early on. And it would be used in baptism. So baptism is a rite of initiation. We don't baptize just anybody and everybody. Like we might preach to everyone, and we might serve everyone, and we might seek to fellowship with others. We might kind of open the doors for anybody and everybody to come in. But baptism are for those who believe. Like baptism says, I'm going public with a faith about God. And so this was used for baptism. Now, a few months ago, or maybe a year ago now, I can't remember exactly, there was a viral video, at least in my social uh, media um, outlets, and it showed an Orthodox uh, priest kind of baptizing a baby pretty quickly. You know, it was kind of dipping him in three times. Did anybody else see that? Yeah. So some people, it's a little funny for those of us who aren't from that particular tradition, perhaps. It looked a little bizarre to see an infant kind of flipped upside down and then dip three times into the water. Now, what's interesting about that is actually being submerged three times in the water was an ancient form of baptism. Because the Great Commission, as we know, says, as you are going, make disciples of all nations. Disciple all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to keep what I have commanded you. This is Jesus kind of speaking to the, the earliest apostles on the Mount of Ascension. So that baptism into the Father, Son, and Spirit was practiced in a a way that people would be kind of submerged three times. But before they were submerged, this is what they would be asked. They would say, do you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? And, and the person being baptized would say, yes, I believe. And they'd, they'd go down and come back up. Well, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he was conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried? And they would say, yes, I believe. And they'd go back down a second time. And then they would be asked, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? And they would go down a third time. And that, that was the way it was practiced. And so uh, what's interesting about that is, as I've actually considered, maybe we should practice that. So kind of incorporating that ancient practice. So that um, we've heard before uh, this, this idea. Well, let, let, let me switch gears just a minute. So, uh, it's just a side note. Some of those early uh, baptizees were baptized naked. Uh, we are not going to adopt that. <laughs> so, on the one hand, we want to be consistent with our tradition. On the other hand, we want to be innovative. 
We believe that the one true God who was alive and living and speaking wasn't just speaking to them so we could mimic it, but that we, we also hear from God and that God also guides us. And so that our practices, on the one hand consistent, but on the other hand, say innovative, and at least one of our innovations are going to be we're only going to baptize the clothed. Yeah. All right. So this baptism, uh, since it was used, or just the creed, excuse me, since it was used for baptism, was a form of catechesis. It was a form of teaching. It was a form of, of, of bringing people kind of, kind of through the process of what they were, they were experiencing spiritually and emotionally as they had encountered God to kind of, kind of mentally get their head around what it was that they were doing. And so it's used for that purpose. Uh, the creeds were a form of catechism. And in a way, that's how we're using it too. By preaching a summer series called Ancient Future, Yesterday's Wisdom for Tomorrow's Truth, we're using the creed as kind of a framework for a series of sermons that will teach us. But it's more than just a catechism. Because in the practice, it's also a sacrament. It's this outward sign of an inward grace. There's something that happens to us when we confess with our lips what we believe in our heart. That the, the baptism itself, this kind of public action of identifying with Christ before kind of fellow believers and kind of representing our public faith to the world is something that kind of does something to us. So in a way, we do it because something has been done to us, but then the very practice of it continues to form us in kind of in helpful ways. And so that's, that's why we do it. So the creed is divided into three major sections, uh, traditionally called articles, Article 1, Article 2, and Article 3. And each kind of starts with uh, attention to part of the identity of God. Uh, the first on God the Father Almighty, uh, the second on Jesus Christ the Son, and the third on the Holy Spirit. So today we'll focus just on the first article, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So I'd like to kind of break that down uh, briefly, kind of uh, one kind of section at a time. And we'll start with this word I. So when someone professes the creed and they say, I believe, who is this I that is believing? So on the one hand, of course, it's, it's the person, right? And it's you if, if you've been baptized. It's you if you identify yourself as a follower of Christ. You are the one who's believing. However, it is not some kind of radical form of individualism. So I'm just going to do it myself. I can do it my own way. So it's, it's a funny thing about contemporary Christianity, or at least the Christianity that I grew up with, we felt almost compelled to do everything with spontaneity. Like if we planned anything for a service, we felt like somehow we might be missing the Holy Spirit because we thought the Holy Spirit only moved on people in kind of in the moment. So the idea that somehow the Spirit might move on you when you're actually planning to do something <laughs> seemed foreign to us. Right? The Spirit couldn't work ahead of time. The Spirit could only work kind of in the instant. So this, this is not the case, though. So this I is you. It is personal. This is a personal faith. This is not a faith that you have vicariously through someone else. Um, the old preachers would like to say, God has children but no grandchildren. Amen? Right? 
God has children, but no grandchildren. All of us are children of God. In the same way that Jesus the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord and Savior, is the Son of God, we too become sons and daughters of God. We're not, we're not derivatives farther down the line. It's an amazing thing about this. So I would say it like this. The faith is personal, but it's not individualized. It's personal because it involves us as persons, but we are a part of this group. We are being baptized into the body of Christ. Paul would say there are many members, but there is one body. That's why what we do and what we believe and how we behave matters because we belong to this one body. I mean, have you, any of you ever had back problems? You have a backache? Really, none of you? A show of hands is what I meant to say. There you go, a lot of you. Or you've had a headache? Look, pain can reduce us so much so that we're hardly human anymore, right? We lose our focus. It's hard to concentrate. It's hard to think or feel or act on anything else. Pain is very reductionist in how it, how it, uh, what it does to us. But if we think of ourselves, not just as these kind of radical individuals, but if we think of ourselves as a part of the body of Christ, if one part of the body is hurting, it should affect the whole. Again, Paul will say, how can the eye say to the foot, or eye say to the ear, I'll get in a minute, uh, I have no need of you. Or how can the, the hand say to the foot or head say to the foot? Whatever Paul says, you, you can read it. <laughs> All of a sudden, I got confused about uh, what bone was connected to what bone. <laughs> the knee bone connected to the thigh bone, shin bone. Am I going up or down? Right, so just to repeat myself here, the faith is personal but not individual because we are a part of a group. And as baptism and as confession goes, it's personal, but it's not private. The faith is not something to be kept to yourself. The faith is not something that just matters to you. It matters to us. And so the I that says, I believe, is personal, but it's now a part of this bigger group. And this bigger group has manifestations all over the world one local manifestation of that is Oasis Community Church, right? We're a part of this community. This is where we regularly attend, where we come and worship God and sing songs and pray prayers and hear sermons and, and get baptized or, or watch our brothers and sisters be baptized in the body of Christ that we've been baptized into. We come to the table, right? And we, we partake of the body and blood of Christ. That's, that's the I that we're talking about. So, just a, a, a last couple of comments on this. Um, again, kind of growing up, I felt like everything had to be kind of, uh, again, with spontaneity. So the idea that somehow I would repeat a prayer that someone else had said, or for that matter, almost sing a song that someone else had sang, seemed almost disingenuous, like it had to be me, it had to come from me. Right? We all had to be individuals. But the problem with that is, if we all have to be individuals, then basically we all become the same bland thing. Right? There's something about the tradition. There's something about this particular set of words, that we're saying the same things that our fathers and mothers have said, that our grandfathers and grandmothers, 
that generation after generation after generation of people have said that identifies us as a group. Uh, churches, in fact, organizations, businesses, leadership gurus, the, the big thing these days is that if you want to reorganize or, re, or rejuvenate your group is you need a new mission statement. You need a vision statement. You need some core values. And we're going to get the group together. Look, Oasis doesn't need a new mission statement. Do you know why? Because our leader has already given us a mission. As you're going, disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them everything that I've commanded you to do. That's our mission. How do we accomplish it? Through the great commandment. Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbors ourselves. We're not looking to recreate the wheel. We're not looking to be new and, and creative in that sense of the word. We're looking to be as faithful to the tradition as we can be. And that's, that's part of how this I then works. The I, that personal I that's baptized into the body of Christ, isn't just baptized into a local group, but into a global group. And not just to a global group, but the global, global group that's been around for millennia. Right? That's who we're part of. So then it says, I believe. So we all believe. Belief, uh, trust, is a part of what it means to be human. Like we're, we're constantly in uh, cases where we're trusting, right? So when you flip on a light switch, why do you reach over and flip the switch? Because you trust that the light will come on. When you step on your brake, why do you do that? Because you trust that when you step the brake, the car's going to stop. Like, it's impossible to live in a world, to live a life where we're not constantly trusting in something. So somehow, we think that we have been able to kind of parse that out and that we need proof for things. But there's all sorts of things that you don't need proof for, right? You grab an umbrella, not because you think uh, you need proof that it's going to rain, it's because you live in Lakeland, and it's June. <laughs> it's going to rain every day. So we're all the time kind of filled with, with trust. And even the things that we imagine that we need proof for are actually built on things that we already trust. Right? So whether it's medicine that we take when the doctor gives us, not because we really understand how it works, but because we trust that this, it'll work that way. The same way with how we treat our loved ones, how we treat our coworkers or our neighbors, it's all kind of built in that. So this song that we, we sang uh, during the offertory was a song about belief. One of the lines that I loved about it, and I don't know if you picked it up, it says, belief makes a great armor but a horrible sword. I love that. Belief makes a great armor but a horrible sword. It's not, belief is not intended to be a, a weapon that kind of uh, defends yourself or kind of hurts the other. But belief kind of gives you this sense of identity and parameters, and it kind of shapes kind of who you are. So when we're saying, I believe, this is what we're saying, I believe. So I believe in, in God the Father. Now, certainly, this is kind of a, a very kind of unique Christian uh, statement. Uh, in the ancient world, the idea that somehow uh, the divine 
was in relationship with humanity was, was a, a novel idea. Um, both the, the Greeks and the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Romans, they had a sense of gods, but the gods had little to do with humans. Um, humans were kind of this um, unnecessary kind of uh, commodity that could be used and consumed. And so, so people had to do things to kind of appease their gods. So this idea that God was loving, that God was, was parental, was, was something that was setting them up against this, this statement when someone said in the ancient times, I believe in God the Father. They were saying something that was atypical for religious belief. Now, let me uh, pause just for a second to talk about this idea of God as Father. So, a couple of things. One, this, this is kind of based on an analogy that uh, fathers have kind of healthy, loving, supportive relationships with their children. And so I can only imagine that there's a number of you, or if not you, your friends or family or coworkers, have not had the privilege of having a loving father. And so the analogy of God as father might sound horrible to you. It might sound scary. That might have been the person who was abusive or manipulative or controlling. And if that's the case, I want you to kind of hold, hold the analogy just you know, loosely here because what's, what's, it's being used to suggest that this is the standard, right? This is how things should be, but not necessarily how you have experienced it. And then there's this other thing. When we say that God, oh, I believe in God the Father, we're not saying that I believe that God's a man or male. Um, you know, sometimes uh, there are contemporary songs that will refer to God as parent or refer to God as mother. And some people think, uh, they kind of they chide at that, and they're like, oh, wait a minute, you know, we don't need to bring, you know, modern ideology and politics into the church. You know, let, let the feminists keep the nightly news. We're the church, right? But, but the church, the ancient church, argued against this idea of, of gendering and sexing God from early on. Uh, Gregory the theologian, one of the Cappadocians, uh, there, there's only three church leaders historically in the ancient church that got the title theologian, meaning this is the person who's good at thinking for our group. And Gregory was, was one of the three. He would say, when we say father and son, you shouldn't think of like, gender and sex. That's not what we're talking about because, again, that's what the pagans did. So the Greeks and the Romans had gods and goddesses and they did things often motivated by, by desire and passion. They would do things that would kind of promote sex and they would do things that would kind of promote desire and, and the early church was saying, that's not who we are. Uh, we're not that group. And then they would quote, not just uh, Gregory uh, the theologian, but also Augustine, they would quote these psalms and other parts of scripture that also would use um, feminine metaphors for the way in which God would behave. So this is not some kind of new liberal or progressive movement. This is the ancient church saying, look, when we, when we talk about God, 
We, we can use certain language, but we know that it's not the language of the pagans. It's not the language of the world where they try to make God into, you know, just this type of person. Because God's not like that. God's different. God's other. God's not uh, gendered. God's not sexed. Yeah? So, I believe in the God the Father is a statement about love and care. And this gets teased out more when we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. So, Almighty. So, we have a little bit of an aversion, I think, uh, to power, right? Maybe you don't. Maybe I'm speaking to me here. Like, I don't like to be told what to do. I, I like to think of myself as an autonomous person. Uh, if someone says, hey, you should do this, I'm like, well, you know, maybe I might do that. Maybe I might do something else. Yeah? Because we often experience power in kind of a human way, which has a tendency uh, to be abusive. Right? Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So when we're talking about God having power, that's a different thing altogether than what humans have, when humans have power. When humans have power, it means they have the capacity and the ability to, to exert their will and make people do things. It's kind of manipulative. It's, it's, it's heavy-handed. God's power is altogether different than that. God's power is not like ours, but just more of it. Right? God's stronger than we are. God's more forceful than we are. God's more convincing or manipulative than we are. God's power is God's alone. God's power is the power that created us. God's power is the power that sustains us. God's power is the very power that enables us to even have power, right? The, the ability that we have to make choices is only possible because of God. God doesn't manipulate. God, God doesn't kind of force in those ways. If God wanted us to, to force us to do things, look, God could force us to do things. If God wanted to force the world to kind of work out a particular way, God could do that too. But apparently that's not the kind of God we have. And we see this a time and time again in Scripture. Uh, Gregory of, uh, of Nyssa, who was a friend of the other Gregory, there's only, there's only three Cappadocians, and unfortunately two of them are named Gregory. So you have Basel, Gregory, and Gregory which always remind me a little bit of Bob Newhart show. I don't know if you remember that one. Where the one guy had two brothers, Daryl and Daryl. Yeah. So Basel has, has a brother named Daryl, and then their best friend was, uh, not Daryl. Basel <laughs> had a brother named Gregory, and then their best friend was also named Gregory. So, but, but Gregory of Nisa would say, look, God's power is like uh, a nursing mother. It's gentle, it's supportive, it enables so that God doesn't come in the world and use power in the same way we do as a lever to get things to happen. God comes into the world and loves and dies. Like, we'll get to that next week. But, but the, the presence of God in the world, most fully in the person of Jesus Christ, and then spread out through the world through the Holy Spirit is, is not the kind of power as we would normally use it. It's gentle. It's supportive. It's creative. 
It enables. It's, it's the ideal. It's, it's what we wish we were, right? Imagine if, if you were a parent and that the whole sphere in which you operated did nothing but enable your children to be full and rich and flourishing. Like sometimes I'll see homes that I think are functioning really well, and I can tell because, because the children are like utterly comfortable there. There is no threat whatsoever. They can stretch out on the floor. They can kick off their shoes. They're, they're in their father's house. It doesn't matter who comes in, no matter what the guest of honor, what rank they might have, because in that house, the child is the child of the father of the house. The same is for us when we come in here. This is our father's house. This is probably why Hannah never wears shoes here, right? Because she thinks she doesn't have to wear shoes in her father's house. right? Because we feel comfortable. Because... This isn't somebody else's place. This is our dad's place. That's how you should feel. And that's how, not only should you feel that way about Oasis, you should feel that way about planet Earth. This is, this is your father's planet, right? This is why you should pick up some litter, right, if you see it on the street, because you'd pick up trash if you went into your parents' house and you saw that somebody had dropped something. You wouldn't just walk by it. You pick it up and say, oh, somebody dropped something, I'll put it in the trash can. Why? Because it's your parents' house. Yeah? That's, that's who we're serving. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the loving, supporting, creative, one and only God and King of the universe. Which brings us to the last point, that I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So, again, in the ancient world, so I, I keep referring back to this because um, when the creeds were, were written, they weren't written in some kind of isolation or abstraction. They were written in a context, like with real people in a real place, in real time. And, and so part of what was going on, again, in, in, in pagan religion was that sometimes the creation would get worshipped. Right? They'd worship the sun. They'd worship the moon. And they're like, uh, nope, that's not how this works. Right? We worship the creator of the sun and the creator of the moon and the creator of the earth and the creator of all things, including us, the maker of heaven and earth. There was um, an early church leader. His name was Marcion. And he was very popular. And he had this idea that there were two gods represented in Scripture. The God of creation, which he thought was kind of evil, because look around, the world's kind of broken and messed up. And Jesus, who he saw as kind of the God of, of light, of the Spirit. So things that were kind of physical and things that were, were made, he saw as kind of negative, And things that were just cerebral, that you could just kind of think about, or spiritual, right, you could experience, he thought that was good. So he kind of he didn't just dismiss what he thought was the God of creation. He dismissed the whole Old Testament, right? And he was just focusing in on only, for that matter, only eleven books of the New Testament. 
It was a very small canon. <laughs> when, he, when he liked scripture, it was just like this much scripture. Right? So when the uh, early church leaders responded to that by writing the creed that I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, they're saying that this, this one that we serve is the one who made all these things. Like, the world is good. Like, people are, are, are good. Uh, love is good. Relationships, good. Like, every time, read, read the Genesis. Read the creation stories in Genesis. Every time God made something, he's like, oh, that's good. <laughs> Sounds like my mom <laughs> a little bit. She's like, oh, Robbie, look at this. That looks good. I'm like, yeah, mom, you made it. <laughs> right? God seems pleased with the stuff he makes. And he made you. Look, this last week, uh, kind of our world got shocked uh, by those who died by suicide. Uh, Kate Spade and Anthony Bordeaux. Uh, folks who we thought kind of had it all. The wealth, the fame, the accomplishments. But yet, we kind of live in our own selves, right? And we can experience kind of darkness and we can experience... Uh, depression. And what I want to say to you is that God made you. God loves you. The way God made you is good. And if, if you're having uh, those feelings uh, that you might want to take your own life, I encourage you, say something to someone. someone. Say something to me. Say something to Phil or, or Mikkel or someone on staff. Say something to your, to your spouse or to your family. That don't, don't live in isolation. Uh, we can get help. Uh, there's, there's counselors and, and there's suicide prevention uh, resources. Because God made us and God thinks we're good and God loves us. And, and that's, that's the reality. We might not be able to see the reality or experience the reality in the midst of our own kind of personal bias. But the reality is that God made this and God loves this. So it's interesting. So that, that idea that the created stuff was bad um, was being resisted by this idea that, that God the Father Almighty is the maker of heaven and earth. And uh, two things. One, sometimes people like to set religion and science up as though they're adversarial. Um, as though that you either have to make them mesh together or you're going to prioritize uh, one or the other. Uh, let me say this. Uh, faith and science aren't at odds because faith and science aren't speaking to the same things. Right? If we're going to ask questions of why and, and so what, those are the questions for faith. Right? If we're going to ask the question, in terms of creation, if we want to ask who, right, that's a, that's a theological statement, a theological question. Who? God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Not how, not when. The, those, those ideas that somehow we need to have a Christian understanding of science as opposed to the non-Christian understanding of science is just misguided. Why do you think technology works it's true. You trust it, right? 
Because you carry your phone and you pull it out, you trust that the text is going to come through, the email is going to come through, the GPS is going to work, the camera is going to work. You could use that new feature that some of these have called uh, talking, right? You can talk to one another even on, on, a, on a cell phone. I know, it's amazing what they can do these days, right? You just trust it's going to work. That stuff works because, well, science is true. That's why it works. And it's true when it comes to cosmology and geology as well, not just when it comes to technology and medicine. But if somebody thinks that they can answer the questions of, of who and so what by virtue of, of physics and math, that's where, that's where the rub comes, right? So we can know who created and what it means that it was created but not the how or the when. That's, that's not a faith question. That's a science question. And there's no good reason to be anti-science. Again, you're not anti-science when it comes to medicine and technology, right? So why be anti-science when it comes to cosmology and geology? So God created all this. And when we get to Revelation, moving very quickly from Genesis to Revelation here, when you get to Revelation, John has this vision of the throne room. And the one who sits on the throne is being worshipped by the four living creatures, by the 24 elders, by myriads and myriads and myriads of angels. And then it says, by everything above the earth, on the earth, and under the earth. And everything in the sea, just in case you were concerned that maybe in the sea those folks weren't, you know, worshipping. So everything is giving worship to God, and there is one stated reason in Revelation chapter 4, when John first has his throne room vision, there's one stated reason why God is being worshipped. Because God is creator. We worship the one who created because that one created. That's why. We give worship. And look, I... Back to the, the early church again. Those guys, Marcion, and those guys that wanted to say, well, the earth is bad and the spirit's good, before we just kind of lump them into kind of heretical statements, let's, let's pause just for a second and give them somewhat of their due. Because when they looked around and they saw war and famine and disease and sexual abuse... Can you see why they might think, hey, the world's broken? Maybe even the world's bad? Look, if you don't think there's problems in the world, you're too isolated. If you think everything's cool, your personal bias is off. Yeah? Look, there's lots of things that are trending in good directions. Um... Uh, Poverty is trending uh, globally in a good direction. Healthcare is trending uh, globally in a good direction. But, but the world is filled still with, with sadness, with homelessness, with immigrants and refugees, with disease, with disaster, with tragedy. When Isaiah had his vision, you know, the king died. And uh, King Uriah, who was a good king. And so everybody's like, whoa, that's bad news. And so I, Isaiah's in the temple, right? It's where we like to go when we have bad news. We kind of come close to God. 
And Isaiah has this vision of God. And uh, in Isaiah's vision, he hears the angels singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That's a three-line song. Line one, holy, holy, holy. Line two, the Lord God Almighty, just like in the Creed, right? Line three, the whole earth is filled with his glory. When John has his vision of revelation, he sees God, he sees all of creation worshiping God, which is kind of like we sang earlier in the song, right? If the stars are made to do what they do and worship, so will I. If, if the creatures are made to do what they do and they worship, so will I, right? If, if, the, if the clouds go where they're supposed to do because that's where God sends them, then so will I, right? It's that. But what's interesting about John's telling of that story is that he hears a similar song, but the third line has been changed. The angels in John's vision of the throne room sing, Holy, holy, holy. That's the same line as the first line. Uh, the Lord God Almighty. Once again, same, second line's the same. But then John says, as opposed to the whole earth is full of your glory, John says the one who was and is and is to come. Because this is our trust. This is our faith. When, God, when, when John looked around, he's like, I don't think the whole earth is full of God's glory. I think I can see that bit where there's a church being persecuted. I think I can see that bit where there's people who are suffering. I can see that bit where there's economic depression. Or I can see that bit where there's military oppression. Or I can see that bit. And you see all these things that are kind of wrong with the world. It doesn't mean that John's a pessimist. He's just a realist. And it doesn't mean that he doesn't have hope. He has hope because the third line says, God who was, the one who created, God who is, the one who sustains us, and God who is to come, which is the Christian hope that this is not the end of the story, but in the end, God comes, and when God comes, God delivers, God saves, God transforms, God makes those things that are wrong right. So it's not that I think that John's version of the story is utterly at odds with Isaiah's, or John's version of the song is utterly at odds with Isaiah's. It's just that Isaiah, I think, is imagining the very end when things get sorted, and John's imagining where we are now, worshiping the God who was and is and is to come. And our hope that when God comes, the whole earth at that time will be filled with the glory of God. This is what we believe, right? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth.